Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with Fumbi Ogunlesi, Interim Head of Messaging at NEON, an organization working to accelerate social movements through training, relationship building, incubation, and infrastructure support. It was recorded at the beginning of November 2023. In her role, Fumbi supports the likes of campaigners and activist groups in communicating their issues with effective frames and powerful messages. She was part of the Framing Climate Justice Project, linked in the show notes, and was one of the writers of the Climate Justice Guide, also found in the show notes. She's since gone on to write guides for COP, including on loss and damage. Amongst other things, Fumbi and I discussed the impact that different framing strategies can have on people's perceptions of an issue, why pointing the finger at those responsible for the harms around us is essential, and how doing so can combat fatalism and give people agency to act. One thing you might hear Fumbi refer to a few times is ULES, London's ultra-low emissions zone. For more information on this issue and the controversies surrounding it, check the link in the show notes. Anyway, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Fumbi Ogunlesi. From your perspective, how can communication help mitigate the worst effects of climate change in the first place? From our perspective at NEON, comms is not a magic bullet. Yes, it's effective in doing this work, but it's definitely not the only thing and is not going to be as powerful on its own. Comms has to always be implemented with organizing and all the other actions that groups can take. At NEON, we work very closely with organizations, grassroots groups, campaigners, activists, so like our comms never exists outside of the work that they're doing. It's always aligned with that work and trying to serve their organizing and the campaigning in the best possible way. But that being said, I think one of the most powerful things about comms and like messaging is how you can tackle fatalism. And I feel like that's almost the biggest opponent that we have in climate change. That belief that things are never going to change. I can't do anything about it. Crisis, crisis, crisis. And I have no agency. The way that you can do that in your communications is by being clear about what's happening. So who is causing problems, who's creating problems. And in that way, you're priming people to see that, okay, we're not here inevitably. People have made decisions for us to get here. So that means that they are more primed to think about solutions being enacted by people as well. And then solutions is almost the most important thing. If you don't talk about clear solutions, then you're leaving people in a place with the problem and then nothing to do about it. So yeah, comms is no magic bullet, but I feel like speaking about the fact that problems are created by people and solutions can also be implemented by people is one of the first steps in dealing with the climate crisis. Could you briefly explain the concept of framing and why it's crucial in conveying messages associated with climate change effectively? Framing is basically the choices you make about how to communicate about an issue. It's about what you choose to emphasize, what you choose to explain, what examples you choose to use, how you basically approach an issue in a way to influence people's actions. An example that we always use is around tax. 
tax can be framed in a myriad of ways, but we know that our opponents like to frame tax as a burden. They talk about the fact that tax is taken away from you. It's a burden on people's lives, which is true. Tax is taken away from you. But what's also true is the fact that tax is used to build our schools and hospitals and roads and all the things that it's used to benefit society. So both things can be true about tax, but if your opponents can use the burden frame to leave out all the other things that tax does to focus greatly on the negatives or the things that people find complicated about tax, whilst us as progressives can choose to frame tax around the things that it gives us. And in that way, we're leaving out the money and like all of that stuff, we're framing it around what tax does. So depending on how the person speak to me is framing tax, they can hold my perspective in the more progressive view of tax. And then that will then influence how I view it and what I choose to do about it. And how this works in speaking about climate change is we've been really successful in framing climate as a crisis. There was a point in time where public opinion probably didn't see climate change as a thing that's even worry about. Our opponents had a very loud voice of climate denial, but over such a long time of framing climate change as a crisis, framing it as an urgent thing to tackle and something that people care about, we've been able to move public opinion over time. So in that way, that's how framing can really affect how people think about things. And now we know that concern for climate is really, really high. And it's our job to hold people there in that concern. But then it's moving them beyond that, the crisis and the urgency to what can we actually do about it. And I think another thing that our opponents are doing very well is framing climate solutions as a burden on society. They were very good at framing it as this is going to cost you a lot. You shouldn't support this. So I guess a lot of people that we work with are trying to do the inverse of that, of trying to frame solutions to climate change as an opportunity to create bigger change in the systems and how it works, long-term transformation. So that's another battle that we're facing right now. Our opponents framing it as solutions to climate change are just going to be terrible and then we need to frame it as like these are really transformative solutions. You're mentioning opponents a lot. I think that it would be useful for listeners to understand what we mean by that. So maybe you could uh, elaborate a bit. With our comms, we have a very simple theory of change where we want our messages to engage the base and the base are people who are not in activism or in campaigning, but fundamentally agree with us. You know, family members and friends who, when we speak to about the issues that we're working on are like, yes, I'm there, but might not be organizing a protest or doing the work in this world. They might go to one, but they're not super active. And then you have your persuadables who research shows are like the vast majority of people who are fairly undecided in a lot of issues. Uh, they might think strongly about one, but can be very complex and like, contradictory in the belief around a broad range of issues, which means that when they receive messaging from whatever organization or whatever campaign, if it's clear and repeated, that's probably what they're going to absorb. It's like a complex game of keeping them in a certain belief because it can move over time, as we see in climate. And then the opponents, this is a very small percentage of people who we see as actively against what activists are campaigning for. So they're almost 
the equivalent of organizations like NEON and other organizations on the progressive activist space who are organized and working in this day in, day out. So that's not to be confused with a family member who likes such problematic things. They are maybe in the base of the opponents, but they are not organizing workshops, doing marches, doing policy, that kind of stuff. Institutions that are fundamentally disagree with what we're trying to say. That's who I say are the opponents. Could you share some examples of successful climate change communication campaigns that effectively employed framing strategies and tell us what made them successful? I think Green New Deal Rising is a really amazing example of how to talk about climate change and a successful campaigning strategy. They are very solution focused and also very clear about who is causing the problem. It's a real testament to when you're really clear on the problem and the solution, you can really galvanize people, especially young people, which is who they're focusing on. And that, again, works in tandem with the organizing and the door knocking and the canvassing that they're doing. They make it look like a very winnable solution. And I think that's really powerful because then you're clear about what you're saying. You have people who you're mobilizing, your base, who are out there doing things and repeating your message over and over again. That's almost the most important thing about comms is that you want everyone saying the same thing constantly because if you say it once, people are going to forget about it. And our opponents are so aligned in the messaging. They say the same thing all the time, globally even, whilst we are not quite there yet. So I think they're trying to do that, training the organisers in the comms so they can use it and having people speaking from the same hymn book, I guess. So that's one campaign that I think is successful in how it's galvanizing people. Another one was around fracking, which was eight years of consistent campaigning. And I think what's really interesting about that campaign was the messages that they chose and the people that they chose to put on the front line of media campaigns. And again, worked a lot with local groups that was very grassroots organizing, very aligned and like who the villain was and also a very clear solution and a very clear ask. And I think the clearer your ask in that kind of campaigning, the more winnable and achievable it comes across to audiences. You make it sound very much like a kind of framing war. Yes and no. I think there is a fight happening over framing certain issues, beliefs and values, but there's also the real tension and fight over policies. I feel that because of the violence and the harm that is caused by the way the far right talk about issues and the real impact it has on like people's lived experiences. Who are they blaming? Who are they scapegoating? How does that link to increased violence in people's lives? And how does that then impact public opinion that then always impact laws and policies? So I guess when we talk about it in that way, it injects a certain urgency and passion into it because if you don't have the same tools and you're not talking about things in a way that really addresses how aligned and how aggressive and violent the communications can be, then 
you're essentially not doing enough because we can see it very clearly. It impacts people's lives in a very real way. And it's words and it's messaging, but they do have power. We need to be talking better about these things. Like it's not just about the policies. It's not just about the laws you want to put in place, but it's also about how you speak about people. Climate change can be a complex and overwhelming issue. How do you go about identifying the key emotional triggers that resonate with different audience segments to drive engagement? Especially with climate, we don't have to assume anymore what people think because there's so much research out there on what people think about various solutions, like climate crisis, climate change, all of those things across ages, across all demographics. So there's so much out there and this grounds a lot of our work at NEON. The first step is like finding out where people are at. So we do public perception briefings. I guess like a lit review, you just look at what polling is already out there and then that helps us think, okay, what do we know about where people are at right now? What are the gaps in the knowledge? What are interesting beliefs that are really helpful? What are beliefs that are really unhelpful? And it kind of paints a picture of public thinking. And then from there, you can think about, okay, the values that might come up in various concerns that people are expressing. Leisure companies like Common Cause and Climate Outreach do a lot of deep audience segmentation around values. We don't do audio segmentation in, in that way because we segment in the way of base persuadables and opposition. Because we work a lot on broadcasts, the more your message can reach the widest possible audience, the better. So the persuadables is very, very broad and encompassing, but it helps when you're thinking about broadcasts. Looking at a poll, you can only get the numbers, but when we've done focus groups, you can really dig deeper into what gets them excited and angry and upset about an issue. And that's also something you can do through message testing in focus groups of like, you read out a message that you maybe want to use in your campaign and you see how people react to it. And that's really good at finding emotional triggers so that you can then tweak your messaging to fire them up in the right way. We did some research around finance regulation and how we spoke about big banks and corporate greed, all of that kind of language translates into how people either felt really angry about a thing. It's okay, great, that's a good word to use. Well then, you know, take that on. So finding out what values and what ways of speaking about things really fire people up. And yeah, I guess with segmentation, I think it can be really useful if your campaign is really focused, but I do feel like it leaves people out. You know, people are way more complex than that. It's very simplifying. I think it just means that some people are underrepresented, especially like people of colour. We kind of stay away from doing that because I guess you try and see the persuadables and the base as well as diverse a form as they can be and having messages that cut through in that way. When you focus on one type of person, you might be appealing too much to like where they are as opposed to where you want to move them to be. Presumably then your chosen frames have to operate at a kind of higher level because they can't drill down into those subcultural identifiers. You're keeping things so much higher that the common denominator is also up there, right? 
Yeah, that's why we start with values as like the connecting thing and values that are broadly held by most people. Whether you're this or this, you all agree on this value. And that basically serves to form solidarity and unity across difference of people. So when you've done that, being like, we all agree on this thing, and then you then talk about what the problem is, and then you're basically alienating the opposition or the person who's causing the problem. They are not with us on this value. They're the ones who are trying to like disrupt this thing that we all agree on. It's an assumption, and I think it's a clever way of being like, we're all in this together. Even the people might be like, oh, I have never thought about that value. But if you're mentioning a value that people can't really say no to because is a positive value and they want to see themselves positively, you're building that level of like trust and like bringing them on in a way that they might not really think is happening. So yeah, they do operate on a higher level of the most common denominator. That's the point of it, basically, to bring as many people on board. During the Attack, Engage or Ignore event, which I'll link in the show notes um, because it was great, uh, you explained that Neon doesn't try to engage audiences who are directly opposed to narratives supporting climate action. So the opponents that we've already talked about. I wonder if you could give some insight into that strategy. We have the audience of the base persuadable opposition, opposition people who are fundamentally against what we think they are actively organizing for the opposite of what we want and in our messaging the aim for a really good message is to engage the base so the people who agree with us but aren't active we want to engage them make them ambassadors for our messaging so that they can speak to the persuadables who they enjoy the trust of so that could be people in their family the friendship groups the communities the conversations that we have around the dinner table at the pub that's kind of where all of the work happens your base has received your message and then they're repeating it to people that they're speaking to another part of the strategy is to alienate or show the opposition to be the outliers so when you see the opposition as the very small minority of people very much against us when you are using that in your comms show them to be the outliers that they are because oftentimes they are the people causing the problem so in your messaging you're speaking about like x has done this thing whether it's this government or big corporations like shannon bp they have caused this problem it then works along with the value statement where you're showing that we're together on this thing against this person it's very exciting and like galvanizing for people people want to be shown to be fighting against something and especially when the something is causing harm and destruction of people's lives for so long, progressives were like stuck in the cycle of we need to convince the people who are the furthest away from us because when we do that, it's great. Or like we need to debunk this myth and like show them to be wrong. It's just, if you do that, you're forgetting the persuadables and the bits. The sways of people who are ready to receive your message, but you're focusing all your time on trying to convince people who don't agree with you. And it goes down to even conversations you have with people, like whether you choose to engage with a person who's being antagonistic, playing devil's advocate, like being really annoying. I don't have time for this. I go to someone else. It's almost taking that to the high level of, if you're talking about a broad range of people, are you going to use all your effort and your energy in speaking to people who don't agree with you when there's people who are up for grabs, who you're not speaking to? Message testing that they do in the States, like ASO Communications, and also with the race class narrative here in the UK, which I'll go into later. 
messages that are very clear on who is responsible, works really well for both the base and the persuadables, and turns the opposition off, which is basically what we want to be doing, because we don't really have the luxury of time to convince people who don't agree with us. So that's our approach of like, there's so many people that we're ignoring by having messages that appeal to people who are against us. Because if our message appeals to them, then we're obviously doing something really wrong. With evolving scientific understanding and changing public sentiment, how do you adapt and refine framing strategies over time? All of our work is always in collaboration or inspired or absorbing learnings from all the other organisations that work in this world, from like ASO Communications in the States to Frameworks UK, to Public Interest Research Centre in Wales and many more. So I guess we always try and stay updated with how people are doing things. And one thing that we've done recently is integrating the race class narrative approach that was started off in the US by ASO and We Make the Future and was brought to the UK by Class UK. They did a similar research here. And that's been the biggest change that we've done in our strategy so far. It all came from the need to directly deal with the far right divisive tactics and culture wars stoking narratives that they use. And we found that progressives didn't really have the tools to deal with that because people were being, as I said, blamed and scapegoated. They were winning in such an intense way. So that's kind of the genesis of that kind of work. What kind of frames And what kind of tactics can we use to neutralize these divisive tactics and unify people where the far right are trying to divide people? So that's where the race class narrative came up in a way to talk about race and class, because the people who are being blamed, scapegoated, are often people of color, migrants, Muslims, and now also trans people. So It's being very clear of bringing people, those identities, into the universal we and not allowing these divisions to continue. So Class UK and ASO did that research in the UK of how does this work here, tested the messages in a lot of people and did the public perception research of where people are at on race and class right now and developed a report and what they found was effective or wasn't effective. And we basically took that work on, we're going to train people in this, we're going to integrate this into the way that we do our comms because we think it's really, really important to tackle these tactics head on because it's coming up in literally every issue, in migration, in climate, these like cultural narratives and if we don't have the tools to deal with them, then we just let them grow. So it's applying this research into our work and that meant developing a training around it and piloting that training with groups and like seeing the response to it. And that's still ongoing. It's such a new way of thinking and working for people. So it's also making sure that it works in the UK in the way that it does over there and and how can we tweak it to make it more context specific for in the UK setting. That's one thing that we do and as I said, we produce messaging guides and we always have them in like a Google Doc format so we can edit them when things change. So like for example, with ULES, at the start, it was a messaging guide advocating for ULES. And then when it came into action, it was a messaging guide defending it and dealing with the backlash. That was just taking the same guide and updating it. Nothing should just remain in like a PDF because things change so quickly.
what advice would you give to communicators who are passionate about addressing climate change, but who are struggling to effectively convey the urgency and importance of the issue to their audiences? People know that climate change is important and urgent. I feel like we've done a very good job of making people really concerned and so scared that maybe now they don't know what to do. People who are passionate about it want to move people to action. And one of the most powerful ways of doing that is talking about solutions that are really clear and visionary as well. So it's like the, the balance between the vision of the world you're looking to build, but then the actual tangible things that you can do to get there. Anat Shenko Surya, who is from ASO Communications, always says it's about the brownie and not the ingredients. You're selling the brownie, you're selling the vision, but then people really want to know the how. You can't just get away with the big vision because in focus groups, they've just been like, oh, well, that sounds really nice, but how are we going to get there? So one thing that we always recommend, which works for broadcast media, but also quick communications, is that you have a solution for today and then a solution for the long term. And the solution for today could be something really tangible and actionable, something that can be done this month or this year, reversing a policy or like putting this thing in place or putting a law that stops all new fossil fuel projects. That's solution for today. And then... You say that's just the first step in building the bigger vision that you want to build. So it's always having a solution because people are really bogged down by like the urgency, the problem, the disaster aspect of it, and don't really know where to put their efforts. So giving them something to get behind, have something that people can do, show them that they have agency and hope. What's the single most important aspect of communication that we should be paying attention to in our communications endeavours? always speak in really simple language. The jargon and the complicated theories of the acronyms, the things that a lot of people cling on to. Like, I understand because, you know, it helps legitimize yourself. There's a lot of safety in that, but you just need to drill down all your comms into like the really simple, simple language. If you don't do that, you leave so much room for people to be, okay, well, I have no idea what they said, or they can misinterpret things, or they can draw conclusions from things you said that you might not want them to do. What's the biggest mistake that you see communicators make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? Ignoring the fact that there is an enemy, that there is an opposition, we can't leave them out on the narrative. People still don't believe that climate change has been turned into a culture wars narrative, but it definitely has. It's happening with you, Les, very, very clearly. People are being blamed and people are being weaponized to divide people. And like, we can't avoid or ignore that that's happening anymore because that's the way they're going to win on these things. So I think that is the biggest mistake that people are making. One you know, easy way to deal with that is have an enemy. Have someone that you're up against and naming what they're doing and like the harms they're causing and who's responsible because otherwise people will continue to be scapegoated. People need to realise that it's happening and because we choose to ignore it doesn't mean that it's going to go away. I had a brilliant time talking with Fumbi, who had some ideas that I'd never really considered before. But what in particular stuck with you from our conversation? What will you take from it and apply to your own work? For me, it was the intense focus on accountability and pointing the finger at those responsible for the problems that we're facing. For some reason, this is still glaringly absent from so much communication about climate change. Yet we heard how great a difference that small act can make. This was also the first time that I'd been made to consider 
detailed segmentation as lacking in some way. I always assumed that the more specific you could be, the better. But here, Fumbi shed light on the potential shortfalls of that approach. I'm not yet sure how this will impact my work, but it's something to keep in mind moving forward. So that's what I'll be taking with me. But how about you? What did you hear? What will you be incorporating into your communications endeavors? Thanks to Fumbi Ogunlesi for sharing her time and expertise with the show. It was great. You can find links to some relevant resources in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. If you enjoyed this episode, why not leave it a rating or a review? You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts or by subscribing so you never miss out. You can find Communicating Climate Change on LinkedIn too. And if you think the series would be of interest to friends or colleagues, why not point them in the right direction? Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits to help us develop the interest and the insight that we'll need for this essential task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.